morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vongani in Washington. Today is Wednesday, April the 6th, and here are some of the stories we are covering for you this morning. An alleged former militia leader in Sudan's Darfur region pleads not guilty to war crimes and crimes against humanity. Rapes against women and girls, children being targeted and attacked and abducted. South Africa's President Sarah Ramaphosa announces the end of the country's state of disaster brought on by the coronavirus pandemic. That means restrictions on daily life and business have officially been removed. But some measures remain. That is Linda Giptash in Johannesburg. And Somalia's intelligence and security agency says the terrorist group Al-Shabaab is plotting to kill the country's president and prime minister. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. And for our top story, an alleged former militia leader in Sudan's Darfur region has pleaded not guilty to 31 charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity. The trial of the militia leader known as Ali Kusayeb is the first at the International Criminal Court to deal with the Darfur conflict. From Paris, Lisa Bryant has more for VOA. Pursuant to Article 82C, subparagraph 1. Wearing a blue suit, Ali Mohammed Ali Abdelrahman sat with folded arms as he listened to a long list of atrocities he allegedly participated in nearly two decades ago. Speaking here through a translator, he denied the charges against him. I reject all of these charges. I am innocent of all of these charges. I, I am not accused of any of these charges. International Criminal Court Prosecutor Karim Khan offered a very different take. He outlined brutalities supposedly committed by Abdel Rahman and other alleged members of Sudan's feared Janjaweed militia in 2003 and 2004. Rapes against women and girls, children being targeted and attacked and abducted, men and boys, amongst others, being executed and killed, homes being wantonly destroyed, people fleeing with nothing, for many their lives never to be the same again. This is the first trial at the Hague-based criminal court dealing with the Darfur conflict, which the United Nations says killed roughly 300,000 people and displaced some 2.5 million others. It's also the first trial resulting from a UN Security Council referral to the ICC. This is a really important moment. Elise Kepler is Associate International Justice Director at Human Rights Watch. It's not the end. Uh, In fact, it's really just a beginning. But we have not seen any meaningful accountability for crimes in Darfur. And victims have been clamoring to see justice, that that justice is such an important uh, step. Also known as Ali Kusheib, Abdel Rahman was considered a senior Janjaweed member. The militia group was fighting non-Arab rebels who had launched a revolt complaining of discrimination. Rights groups claimed the Janjaweed's response was a deliberate act of ethnic cleansing. Abdel Rahman allegedly played a key role in Janjaweed attacks against at least four villages. <laughs> Prosecutor Khan aired 
clips of interviews of alleged witnesses and victims of the attacks. What has hit me every time I've interacted with Darfuris and actually survivors throughout the world is their dignity and remarkable resilience. The trial comes amid an uptick of violence in Darfur and unrest across Sudan following a military coup last October. Sudan's former president, Omar al-Bashir, and three others are also being sought by the ICC for alleged war crimes in Darfur. Khartoum has yet to hand them over. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. In parts of northern Ivory Coast, militiamen known as Dozos are supplementing state security amid the threat of further instability. Analysts warn that local intercommunal tensions are on the rise, while groups linked to the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda based in Mali and Burkina Faso have crossed the border to carry out attacks. Henry Wilkins reports from Kohogo. In the north of Ivory Coast, local militiamen called Dozos drive along the country's dusty roads where they help the state keep the locals safe. Unlike the nation's prosperous south, development, security and rule of law have struggled to reach here. Armed groups linked to Islamic State and Al-Qaeda already wreak havoc less than 100 kilometres away over the country's northern border in Burkina Faso and Mali. As they begin to attack and try to recruit in Ivory Coast, Ivorian analysts say many of the conditions that caused conflict in Burkina Faso and Mali are present here. Lack of state security, development and intercommunal tensions. One dozo who gave his name only as Sikongo said violence and crime led the militias to organise. He says the dozos work with the rangers, the police, the gendarmes. Often the dozos are called upon to join them on missions and they congratulate the dozos for it, he added. In Burkina Faso and Mali, militia groups also emerged in areas now overrun by terror groups where state control was weak. Bakari Watara runs the chapter of the dozos in Korogo, a major city in the Ivorian north. He believes the government does not have enough resources to install security forces in the smaller villages, especially those that are 25, 50 and 60 kilometres away from the gendarmerie or the police station. Imagine if the population is attacked. By the time the police arrive and intervene, the attackers will already have left, he says. He added that security in the region remains good, however. Traditional leaders in the north also supplement justice and the rule of law by arbitrating disputes. Issa Koulibaly is the traditional leader of Korogo. He says when citizens have a problem that they are unable to deal with, they turn to him. The traditional leader also says development in the north has improved in recent years, although the majority of those living outside of big towns or cities interviewed by VOA disagreed. Another major cause of the conflict in neighbouring countries is tension between herder and farmer communities, which analyst Lucina Diara of the Timbuktu Institute says is also a problem in Ivory Coast. He says the lack of cohesion between herder communities and other communities has not yet seen a very strong response on the part of the state. Arthur Ranga is a military historian at Felix Hufei Boyeni University in Abidjan who advises the government on the security situation in the north. He says tensions in the north have not reached a critical state. There is concern, he says, but there's no exodus or displacement yet, because so far the government has been able to give a good military response and is also trying to build a social response. 
the Ivorian Ministry of Security did not respond to an interview request by VOA. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Corogo, Ivory Coast. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has announced the end of the country's state of disaster brought on by the coronavirus pandemic. Linda Giftash reports from Johannesburg. After 750 days, the end of COVID-19 restrictions are in sight for South Africans with the lifting of a state of disaster. President Cyril Ramaphosa gave a televised address to the nation Monday, repealing the government's legal mechanisms for managing the pandemic. That means restrictions on daily life and business have officially been removed. But some measures remain. Ramaphosa introduced a 30-day transition period that would uphold an indoor mask mandate and requirements to show vaccine certificates or PCR test results to attend large public gatherings. International travelers will also have to be fully vaccinated or present a negative COVID-19 test result. A social grant to those who lost their jobs during the pandemic will also extend through the transition period, after which all measures will lapse. The repeal of the state of disaster comes roughly five months after the last major variant, Omicron, was discovered by the country's scientists. Ramaphosa said while case numbers are high, hospitalizations and deaths remain low. South Africa is the hardest-hit country in Africa with over 6 million COVID-19 deaths. With less than half the adult population vaccinated, Ramaphosa encouraged the public to get their shots. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Johannesburg. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. Now, even though Africa has 60% of the world's arable land, a new report warns that climate change, conflict, rising food and fuel prices are pushing millions on the continent towards hunger. The report by the International Committee of the Red Cross, or ICRC, says that over 340 million people in Africa are facing severe food insecurity in the worst crisis since 2017. The ICRC blames conflicts in areas like northern Ethiopia's Tigray region, Somalia, South Sudan, and other conflict hotspots like Ukraine, which disrupted wheat exports to Africa, for exacerbating famine-like conditions for populations already struggling with the COVID-19 global pandemic. But are there other factors contributing to the food insecurity on the continent? For that, I reached Dr. Catherine Nakalembe, the Africa Program Director under NASA's Harvest Africa Program. Um, I think fundamentally it's not about um, having a lot of unused land because there's definitely a lot of places where uh, a lot of land is under conservation, which has you know huge benefits even for if you're thinking about agriculture productivity. Um, it's more about how we're using the land because if you're thinking about longer term, we can't convert everything uh, into agriculture, then we won't have forests, we won't have you know sufficient water to sustain. Even that, you know, even agriculture in itself or, you know, water for home use or industrial use, whatever the case. I think it is um, something about productivity, how we're using the current land. So, you know, investing in inputs as well as practices that make, you know, uh, land a bit more productive. Um, If you're thinking about, you know, a lot of farmers operating with, you know, basically nothing uh, and then not able to access, uh, it could be be good seeds, it could be fertilizer, but they don't have access to information that could make, you know, agriculture more productive for them. You you deal with data 
in, in your job. What does the data tell us about the, the future, the capacity of African countries to feed their populations? I think what it, what it tells us is that um, without you know, actual investment in sustainable practices, uh, current agricultural land will become less and less productive. So we will definitely not be able to We'll produce less with the same land and expansion is not necessarily the solution. So, you know, clearing forests has been shown, you know, after a couple of years that a productivity of that land goes down. And so I think what it's telling us is that we need to think more strategically and longer term. So we shouldn't think about purely conversion. We should think about um, sustained uh, growth in terms of productivity that yeah. we can improve where we're growing crops right now if you look at um, the differences in yield productivity for example again for maize you find that uh, fields in africa you know uh, estimated to be at two tons per hectare yet in other places we're looking at eight nine ten tons per hectare you know and that's you know fundamentally the difference is it primarily an, an issue of production or even access because if you're able to produce the food but you're not able to take it to the market isn't that a problem in itself absolutely i mean uh, one of the biggest you know one of the if you're talking about food loss and food waste, so in Africa, you know, in Sub-Saharan Africa, majority of the food is lost, uh, not wasted. So that means that from when it's harvested to um, it's lost in between harvesting and, you know, by the time it gets to the market, always lost at the market. So it's not actually consumed. So that's one. And it's infrastructure, it is storage. You're looking at roads, storage, you're looking at, processing uh, while you know tomatoes could be processed at the farm and canned and you know used a lot a lot longer majority of the tomatoes in Africa are lost um, in transit or at the farm and so those types of things that fundamentally have to be addressed you can mm. there's a lot of people that you could feed with the food that's actually lost and lost on um, the way okay yeah, lost on the way so there's a lot of like post-harvest losses that could be addressed for sure yeah. That was Dr. Catherine Nakalembe, the Africa Program Director under NASA's Harvest Africa Program. Debrick Africa continues. Somalia's National Intelligence and Security Agency says that the terrorist group Al-Shabaab is plotting to assassinate the country's president and prime minister. Mohamed Sheknu reports from Ogadishu. Somalia's spy agents said Tuesday that Al-Shabaab is targeting President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed and Prime Minister Mohamed Hussein Roble. In a Twitter post, the National Intelligence and Security Agency, NISA, named the Islamist group Mohamed Mahir as overseeing the plot. NISA gave no further details on the alleged plot, but said officials had been informed. The warning follows a series of recent deadly attacks by the Al-Qaeda-linked group and comes as Somalia is struggling to complete longer-delayed elections. Al-Shabaab claimed responsibility for a March 23rd attack on Mogadishu's international airport that left six people dead. It came the same day a prominent female lawmaker, Amina Mohamed Abdi, was among several people killed in explosions claimed by the group in the central city of Pledwene. During a memorial for Abdi, Prime Minister Robles said 
his life was in danger. Roble alleged Abdi's killing was politically motivated and said he received threats on his own life after he ordered Hasid to be openly contested in the election. In February, Al-Shabaab attacked several police stations and checkpoints in the capital Mogadishu, killing five people. Mohamed Shaknur for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. Malawi has launched a 20-year plan to boost tourism in the South African agro-based country. President Razaras Chakwera said during the launch earlier this week that the Malawi National Tourism Investment Master Plan would help market the country to the world. Economic experts are welcoming the plan and advising the government to make sure it is implemented. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. Speaking during the revised launch of the plan, President Jaguera said it's in line with the country's vision of becoming an inclusively wealthy, self-reliant, industrialized and middle-income country by 2063. Jaguera also said the plan aligns with the goals to develop tourism across the country. The need to place tourism as a key instrument in Africa's transformation and development was adopted at the third ordinary session of the African Union in July of 2004 in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Following its adoption by African tourism ministers in my Seychelles, Chakwera said tourism can help boost Malawi's economy and support numerous other sectors, including agriculture, trade, health, environment, and transport. However, the 2021 World Travel and Tourism Council report shows that the contribution of travel and tourism to the gross domestic product in 2020 declined by about 50%. The report says tourism and trade in Malawi contributed just over 3% to the GDP, down from nearly 7% in 2019. However, President Chakwera said the government is now making strides in creating an enabling environment to boost the tourism sector. We do so to leverage the fact that Malawi has no history of political instability and the lowest crime rates in Africa, which provide peaceful, secure, and stable political climate for doing business. As a commitment to promoting foreign direct investment in the sector, my country also allows for 100% foreign ownership of companies. President Chakwela said Malawi has what it takes to be among the top most tourism attraction destinations in the world. A number of our tourism assets that stand out and are worthy of mention include the unique cichlids of Lake Malawi, 350 species of which are not found anywhere else in the world. Lake Malawi National Park, as the world's first freshwater park and also a world heritage site. Tamanda Kaleke is the principal tourism officer in Malawi. She said the National Tourism Master Plan has a capital of 660 million US dollars and will have 103 projects, including accommodations and man made attractions. 
The reason why we have man-made attractions, Your Excellency, is that we want to increase the length of stay of uh, visitors that come into the country. Because at the moment, visitors do not have enough to do. And by the end of the fourth or fifth day, they've seen everything, they've done everything that they can do in this country. Yet this country has a lot of potential. Bechani Cheren is an economics analyst at Malawi University of Business and Applied Science. He welcomes the plan, but thinks implementation could be a challenge. What I have found to be a major problem in Malawi is the, uh, people have got a special skill in deviating from um, what you have planned and put to paper. Uh, you find that uh, you have got uh, nice plans, but to implement them, it doesn't happen. Partly because of the political angles, because some people, they don't want to be seen that they are advancing what belongs to somebody. Cheleni also says economic challenges could also affect the implementation of the plan. However, government authorities say the African Development Bank is expected to fund the implementation of the project. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. U.S. government officials warn that many African countries will continue to face shortages and high food prices as long as Russia continues to wage war against Ukraine, from which Africa gets much of its wheat and cooking oil. Mohamed Yusuf reports from VOA's African News Center in Nairobi, Kenya. Speaking to journalists online Tuesday, the U.S. representative to the U.N. agencies in Rome, Cindy McCain, said Ukraine is the world's breadbasket and the attack on its land and people is raising hunger around the globe. The Food and Agriculture Organization estimates that as many as 13 million more people worldwide will be pushed into food insecurity as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The truth of the matter is, Putin's war forces us to take from the hungry to feed the starving. As long as Russia continues this brutal campaign, innocent people are going to pay the price. Ukraine annually exports 40% of its wheat and corn to Africa. The World Food Program feeds 138 million people in 80 countries, including Ethiopia and Nigeria, with the grain it gets from the European country. With Ukrainian supplies cut off, food prices are on the rise across Africa. Meanwhile, increasing energy costs has driven up prices of fertilizers, such as phosphate use in food production. Jim Banhat, assistant to the administrator for USAID's Bureau for Resilience and Food Security, says the high cost of living will make life difficult for more families in Africa. Reduced food and food and supplies in subsequent price increases in these commodities make it harder for farmers in Zambia to access input they need to plant their crops and for families in Malawi to to buy nutritious food for their children. So if not mitigated, these price increases could result in significant increases in global poverty, hunger, and malnutrition particularly in regions like sub-Saharan Africa. The International Committee for the Red Cross says more than 346 million Africans face a food security crisis, making families skip meals every day. The ICRC says it will ramp up its operations in 10 countries to combat the food shortages. 
The head of ICRC's global operations, Dominic Stilhart, says the war in Ukraine has impacted their humanitarian work. The other impact which is perhaps uh, more indirect is that this also, the rising food and fuel prices, as well as supply chains that are uh, seriously uh, affected by the situation in Ukraine, they also have an effect on our own uh, capacity to scale up. Uh, lead times are going to be longer, uh, for instance, for food imports, and that is also why we are increasingly resorting to cash uh, uh, distributions and uh, using cash vouchers to uh, support uh, uh, people in the various countries in which we are operating. Persistent drought, poor rains in some parts of Africa and conflicts have also exacerbated Africa's food situation. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. Well, thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voanews.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. Just search for VOA Africa. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. 